And we are going to let that song go and welcome you back to KZSU 90.1 FM. My name is Jacob Nidick, live in studio with my co-host Zach Saffron for your weekly rendition of The Sports Zoo. We're in prime NBA playoff time, the middle of spring quarter. And yet, we haven't been able to discuss so many of the controversial happenings among different Stanford basketball teams, such as the transfer portal, among the baseball and softball teams, namely some key losses from the baseball team and some disappointing losses from the softball team because so much is happening. So with that, Zach, why don't we go ahead and open it up to you. What has caught your eye in the last few weeks of with Stanford sports? Well, yes, this is a uh, Stanford sports talk show. Yes, it's the sports zoo, but and yes, we have listeners that follow up on Spotify, Apple Music, on the podcast af- after, and yes, we have fans worldwide listening on kzsu.stanford.edu, but this is also a Bay Area news radio station, and as an avid Warriors fan, I just I, I can't help but state that it has been on my mind. It has been on my mind that the reigning... NBA champions. It has been on my mind that Steph Curry and his team, it has been on my mind that San Francisco and the Bay Area's basketball team is facing a 2-0 deficit right now to the Sacramento Kings. I did not like the connotation behind the Sacramento Kings right there because we are a Bay Area talk show, but we go all the way to Northern California and reach Sacramento, which, you know, some people could consider the Bay Area, and lucky for the Warriors, most don't. Otherwise, they might not even be the best basketball team in the Bay Area because Sacramento has looked far superior to them in these last two games. Let's start with Game 1. Zach, why don't you give any of the listeners out there that maybe didn't have a chance to watch that, what exactly happened in that game, and more specifically, from a Warriors perspective, what you saw. Well, game one, Kings take it, goes down to the wire, 126 to 123. Road woes continue. It's going to be an uphill battle, especially for the Warriors as a six seed versus this three seed. 11 and 30 on the road in the regular season. I can tell you that's not going to cut it. And what really stood out to me is the way Golden One Center showed out. All right. I do tip my hat to Sacramento. I do tip my hat to Kings fans because, look, it's a couple hours away from the Bay Area. It's a couple hours away from San Francisco, if even a couple. I I anticipated, you know, the Warriors fan base would even show out there, but it seems like Golden 1 really replicated that college-like environment where it was vibrant. And if you're a team that struggles to have success on the road in the regular season, when, quite frankly... Not many people care. And you're going to go into a playoff atmosphere and tell me you're going to have a different outcome? I'm sorry. So the Warriors ultimately falling short just by three. De'Aaron Fox continuing to show out in a campaign where he has just really made a statement for who he has as a player, despite it being his first time in the playoffs. 38 points, the second highest playoff debut in NBA history. The Warriors have to do more than just be 
be themselves. The Warriors have to be flawless. The Warriors have to play the game in the way that they have in years past, which is championship basketball. Not just good basketball, not just great basketball. They need to play championship basketball, and it needs to start right now. Absolutely. A lot to unpack right there. The first thing I want to talk about, though, before we jump into some of the more nuanced on-the-court scenarios, something you briefly touched on, which is the environment in Sacramento. And what a moment for this city, which has long struggled in so many different dimensions. I mean, the Kings were really close to leaving. They had the rights to have an MLS team that eventually decided not to land down in Sacramento. It's been over a decade since they've had playoff basketball. And this franchise and its ownership has really revitalized the area around the arena and really the whole town. But if you talk to many major sports broadcasters and people around this area, everyone expected it to be 50-50, 60-40, very even split between Warriors fans and Kings fans, especially given how that last regular season game looked. And yet, at least on TV, there was hardly any representation from the Warriors fan, whether it was both noise or just the blue and gold. Zach, what do you think that can be attributed to other than you know the fact that it's been so long or what's the discrepancy between the last regular season game and, and this one here where there's such an overwhelming Kings uh, support from the crowd. Light the beam, light the beam. I mean, that's just the best way to encapsulate this newfound pride that the Sacramento Kings have obviously a product of a 48 win season. The first time they've come close to that mark since, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. And it probably predates my time on this earth when they're playing the Lakers in that Western Conference final, which was so controversial. Um, the success has yielded this newfound fanship. But I would like to say a lot of it comes from business, the business decisions. Love them or hate them, Vivek Ranadive has done such a phenomenal job since taking over with this team. And a big part of business is fan engagement. A big part of business is community involvement. The Kings in recent years have really established themselves as leaders in the innovative space, especially when it comes to basketball, when it comes to the fan experience. Hard to do when you're in the NBA, a league that is honestly probably ahead of the curve when it compares itself to the likes of the NFL, MLB, NHL, MLS. The Kings are the forefront of innovation. They have totally maximized the fan experience and for that reason the Sacramento Kings fans came out and showed out I mean the Kings experience is completely different than it was a while ago the stadium renovated a great time even the surrounding area I mean real estate value has skyrocketed in the surrounding area people enjoy not just watching the Kings but going to the games having that entire experience around it I'd like to think that this newfound support is really the product of top-down management, which has, has quite frankly, been really great, as much as I hate to say it. Absolutely. And the arena is really... Bless you, Zach. <laughs> the arena is one to marvel at. Really, 
what many people attribute to why the Kings stayed in Sacramento. They worked out a deal well where if they weren't getting a new arena, the NBA was fully ready to relocate them. And not only did they get a brand new arena, but they got an arena that really rivals the Chase Center here in San Francisco, which has been the perennial best arena in the league. The Golden One Center, though, state-of-the-art in so many ways has really centered the fan experience with subtle things. The number of Wi-Fi points they have in the stadium is dramatically higher than many other league teams. The different mobile apps that they have such that you can skip the concession lines. And those small things really drive engagement with the average fan, with the fan that's spending some of their paycheck and splurging a little bit to take someone out on a date to bring the kids to the game to go enjoy a boys night out those things make the experience just that sweeter bit more special and I think those are the things off the court that have really transformed what it means for Sacramento to be a franchise in the NBA pair that with this past season and what they've been doing on the court and you've got a home court advantage that really made the Warriors and dare I even say rattled Draymond Green especially yesterday in the fourth quarter before we dump into that though on the court game one ends up a three-point game you look at the stat line Curry dropped 30 Clay had 21 Andrew Wiggins who's back and Jordan Poole both had 17 but that's not the full story De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk combined for 70 oh geez (laughs) what did you see from the guards in the game. Obviously, the Splash Brothers and now the new... I don't even know if they have a nickname, but Monk and Fox. Who do you give the advantage to in how they performed in Game 1? Who do I give the advantage to in how they performed? Without a doubt, I mean, De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk, like you said, combining for... Did, did I hear you right? 70 points? 70 on the dot. 38 from Fox and 32 from Monk. Unreal. I mean... Reminds me of a LeBron Kyrie esque duo. Obviously, just sour taste in my mouth because I'm thinking of the 2016 <laughs> NBA Finals. Um, but yeah, with how they performed, without a doubt, Fox and Monk, would that have been my answer entering the game? Absolutely not. This is literally the playoff debut for those guys going against Curry and Thompson, both who have four rings on their fingers to show that experience that they have gathered time and time after again. I mean, in addition to those four rings, obviously trips to the finals two other times but even in game two as well it just seems like De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk have this swagger that is really really pushing the Kings perhaps a product of that home environment as well of course Curry like you said with the 30 burger he's doing what he does Thompson 5 for 14 from 3 not to say he wasn't hitting, but you just, you, you know, you need that Thompson locked in in the playoffs where he's really making those big-time shots, showing a flurry. So the advantage does go to the Kings in that regard. However, my sights more so were set on Andrew Wiggins, who we don't have to get into why he was absent from the team for so long. But back after months away, honestly, Quite impressive, a 17-point performance in 28 minutes. Really 
great showing other than his outside shooting. That being said, his outside shooting has just been his kryptonite in these two games. He had a chance to, I don't remember if it was tie or take the lead at the end of game one, but wide open look, just couldn't fall. You're not going to make it every time, but in in the grand scheme of things in game two, there were times where the Warriors had this momentum to really surge back, and Wiggins just couldn't get that outside shot to fall to put the Warriors in a place to you know, be a real threat of actually winning the game. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, in my opinion, kind of the X factor on this Warriors team is Andrew Wiggins, both because of what he can do offensively, but especially because who he can guard when it comes to the, the defensive end. Obviously, Draymond can guard one through five. Clay can essentially guard one through three, maybe even four. Steph, a little bit of a defensive liability, in my opinion, but Andrew Wiggins can basically guard anybody, can switch any pick and roll and hold his own. Everyone was wondering, not only when was he going to come back, but once he comes back, what does he look like? If he can get hot, this this Warriors team will be able to, to contest the rest of the series. And I think there were definitely glimpses of his performance. I'm thinking of in the second half of Game 2, there was a stretch where he hit three or four shots in a row, a couple of mid-range jumpers, got an assist there, where he looked like the player that he was before this break. He looked like he was right in stride. But it brings up an interesting question of who's going to guard De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk. Steve Kerr, obviously, and the rest of the coaching staff trying to figure this out, did a much better job in Game 2 but in your opinion, what do you think the ideal two players guarding Fox and Monk are from a defensive perspective? It is hard because the Kings' last game starting De'Aaron Fox, Keegan Murray, Kevin Huerter, Harrison Barnes, and DeMontis Sabonis. So not necessarily a small lineup, but definitely not a big lineup. Could even say it shies a little bit away from the traditional, uh, you know, normal positions. But it's tough because DiVincenzo has been so great guarding the perimeter with Peyton back out there as well. Down the stretch, Kerr had him in there guarding Fox. And I'm not going to say shut him down, but really did come up big in some late possessions. Yeah, that might be a little bit of a stretch there. <laughs> okay, yes. But uh, I think it's really important DiVincenzo and Peyton are out there. But where do you put Curry then? You put him on Harrison Barnes' size mismatch. Sabonis and Murray are out of the question. So you can really only have one intended defensive stopper out there with Curry on the floor with the Kings guard play. Puts this team at a real disadvantage. I'm not an NBA coach, but Steve Kerr is, and I hope he has the creativity to figure something out. Yeah, you know, especially when looking at the pick and rolls and how the Kings have been using them, I saw a clip of how they had switched the strategy from game one to game two whenever they brought Looney into the pick and roll and whether they brought him up, switched him, or let him sit back. And I honestly think even if there is no good answer, and there's a reason why they were the three seed, throwing different looks at him, at De'Aaron Fox, at Malik Monk, and these different players with that are so young and haven't been in really a hostile playoff environment like the one they'll see in Game 3 is going to be really critical my question is though is there a player on the Warriors that's quick enough to stop De'Aaron Fox 
GP2 obviously had some moments yesterday where he looked more than capable, but then it kind of brings up some other questions of who is guarding Monk, who's guarding Sabonis. And so in your mind, is GP2 the person for the job, and does he possess the, just the physical capabilities to do that? I, I would like to say so, yes. GP2 is out there late in the game for a reason. We know his offensive game doesn't bring much, and the fact that he still is out there in those critical moments speaks volumes to his ability because he is the guy Kerr and the Warriors look to in these situations. Obviously, when Fox is dropping 38 points a game, it's not looking well. That being said, is there a better answer? It's not necessarily about having the right answer. It's about having the best answer. And at this point in time, I don't know who it could be other than Peyton. Like I said, DiVincenzo could be the guy, but you know the size on the perimeter and wings is something to concern about. For that very reason, I'd like to say Andrew Wiggins is not the right guy. Obviously, defensively talented. Uh, dare I say, generationally defensively talented. But what are you going to do with the wing players? Who are you going to reallocate? It's a tough call. I stick with GP2. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the Warriors, even though they did obviously drop game two, did a significantly better job. Fox had 24 points, but it took him all of 23 shots to get there, which is not nearly as efficient as you would like. We also saw how physical this series was. I think game two for me really showed that. It felt like every single possession there was somebody falling on the floor. There was some sort of contact that I was wondering whether it was going to be a foul. This was definitely highlighted by the play with Draymond where he his foot gets held. He stomps on him or maybe doesn't stomp on him. There's some controversy around that. What was your initial reaction to the play, Zach? And then once you saw a few replays, I don't know if you caught the, the foot grabbing initially, what was your reaction to the tech and, and the double flagrant, or the flagrant two, I should say? Yeah, obviously, this is the talk of the town, not just in the Bay Area, not just in California, but all across the nation, because Draymond Green is such a polarizing figure. Um, and it's tough to judge when he's time and time again involved in instances like this. When I was watching it live, honestly, I, it was obvious his leg was grabbed, and I was like, all right. It's obvious he kind of jumped off, pushed away, and I was like, all right. First glance, I'm thinking, what are you doing, Sabonis? But those replays, man, they do not look good. They do not look good. Draymond, I, I understand like the your leg is stuck. You need to push off something for leverage, but you're an NBA player. You probably have some sort of body control. I, as a Warriors fan, am not proud of that. Yeah, and you know... My take, somewhat similarly, is the foot grabbing and holding completely unnecessary. The escalation by Draymond, that's kind of... I mean, I think both players crossed the line, but in my opinion, it seems like he definitely could have, you know, allowed the foot grab to happen. Maybe he, like, stumbles, sells it. I don't even know what he does, but yeah, I don't know. And, and just by the way Sabonis was writhing on the ground and how long it took... You know, you never want to say if a player was acting or not, if they're injured, but that one to me looked quite genuine, especially given the fact that he's had taken a beating so many times early in the game. 
But it's it's definitely an interesting play, especially because of you know the little scuffle that that was that seemed pretty unintentional earlier. A few plays, whenever they called a foul on Draymond, then reversed it after the rebound. These are the type of plays that you know can really change the game because once he's ejected, where the Warriors go from there is a little bit more up in the air. He's a player that you want on the floor if you're a Warriors fan. Yeah, just just the what those difference makers and I mean in the scheme of the series as well. Draymond talks of suspension. I don't think it'll happen. It's widely believed it won't happen as well, but he believes Sabonis injured his ankle. He's getting X-rays. So, like you said, a guy you want in the court, I don't know if, not by virtue of suspension, but by virtue of injury, he'll even be available. And on the other side, Sabonis being evaluated for a rib and and a lung injury, but it looks like he will suit up in Game 3. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so hard to tell how much of a beating these players are, how much is precautionary, and also how much is the team just wanting to say, Hey, yeah, he did this to our guy. Like, let's let's make sure people know that he's in pain. On to game three, though. Two days from now, back in the Bay Area where the Warriors have been so dominant. What's it gonna take for them to win game three? Well, I can't wait for next week when I can tell you after I've watched with my very own eyes that the Warriors will be winning game three after a new defensive game plan, a Steph Curry and Klay Thompson oh-dang moment, time to wake up, and the home Warriors showing that this is a dangerous team that just needs to figure it out on the road. You heard that here first, folks. Zach Zaffron (laughs) is willing them to victory with his own yelling and his own good luck. If the Warriors take game three... You better liquidate the funds and find a Game 4 ticket because you might be the good luck charm if they pull it out. Yeah, don't know if we can uh, make that one happen. This (laughs) one's a little tight already, but uh, no guarantee this voice will even be, you know, available next week after the shouting and screaming that will be happening on Thursday evening. Yeah, no, totally get that. And, you know, speaking of injuries, such an interesting part of the NBA playoffs. We jump to the Eastern Conference and we look at some of these players that have been injured Thinking of Giannis specifically, this series, you know, maybe doesn't matter all that much, but thinking of the future rounds, health is such an important part of which team makes a deep run. What have you seen from the Eastern Conference's perennial contenders, the Bucks, the Celtics? And after games one and two, obviously the Celtics playing game two today, who are you most intrigued by thus far? I guess by intrigue, this isn't a statement on whether or not I think they have real chance at a title, but more so intrigue as into, I don't know what's going to happen. Like you said, Giannis is out, and the eight-seeded Heat take game one in Milwaukee anytime there's real chance of an 8-1 upset. Obviously, I'm very intrigued. Is there a real chance here contingent upon Giannis, who arguably should have been MVP? Depends on whether or not he's on the court. Of course, the Bucks are a squad that are talented and capable without the Greek freak. I mean, Chris Middleton, 
Drew Holiday, guys that can certainly, you know, pick up the slack, but I am a firm believer that Jimmy Butler is the guy you want on your team in the playoffs. I mean, a 35-point per per performance. This is a dude I do not want to go up against, even as a one seed. Jimmy Buckets, playoff Jimmy, whatever you want to call him. I don't know what it is that gets into him, but he makes it happen. Absolutely, and it feels like every time the Heat are in the playoffs, there's a different player that comes out of nowhere and has an ungodly performance. Um, Tyler Hero in the bubble went off in Game 1. There was a few other players that went absolutely crazy. We also had a blast from the past with Kevin Love making four three-pointers. He had 18 (laughs) points. In all honesty, I didn't even realize he could still walk, much less run. Feels like he's been in the league as long as LeBron has. This Heat team, you know, I, I did not give them a shot. With Giannis injured, and I don't know what the timeline is looking like, could an eight seed upset the one seed? Not out of the question. I mean, the Heat, a, a talented team, without a doubt, and just had its ups and downs, and with this type of momentum, you never know what can happen. Like I said, Jimmy Bucket's a guy that I'm never going to count on in the playoffs. But other guys stepping up, I mean, Bam out of bio, obviously getting it done. Tyler Hero, like you said, didn't anticipate that Kevin Love would be a contributor. It's just dependent on whether or not these stars can keep it up. Because let's be real, Gabe Vincent running point guard for them. I don't know how sustainable that is. I don't know if that's a championship point guard. Um so can the Stars outlast these other teams? Playoffs are so tough because, yes, it is about depth, but the Stars are out in the court trying, really giving it their all. I don't know. Maybe a first-round upset could be in the cards, but even if they get it done here, I don't know if they get past the second round. Absolutely, and and couldn't agree more. I personally love to see some of these no-name players shining at the biggest moments. Gabe Vincent, third-year guy out of UCSB. He's been averaging nine points this year. But in game one of the playoffs, goes four for five from behind the arc. Absolutely crazy performance. And as a Celtics fan, I absolutely love this. One, because if the Heat can somehow upset the Bucks, that would make the path to the final significantly easier. But also every additional game that any team has to play in the playoffs is a huge, huge win for their future opponents. These games are so physical, and especially the Heat and Bucks, two teams that aren't afraid to get down in the paint and fight for rebounds, challenge anything near the rim. The Celtics have to be absolutely loving this, especially the way that they looked in their game, second half, a little bit sloppier, but the first half, they really look like a team that can make a run all the way. They do, they do. Like, these first-round games, if you're a higher seed, you don't want to have to make it a six- or seven-game series. As a Warriors fan, not the higher seed, but you're worried that this is now, at this point, has to be at least a six- or seven-game series because the fatigue will set in as the playoffs go on. Obviously, I think the contested series it seems like in the east now will be Milwaukee Miami arguably Cleveland and New York after New York upsets Cleveland and Cleveland as well 
Otherwise, Boston 1-0 up against the Hawks and Philadelphia up 2-0 over the Nets. So those might go quickly, but parity certainly at the top of the bracket. In terms of Cleveland versus New York, Jacob, New York the five-seed upsetting a four-seed Cleveland. It's a 4-5 matchup. It's game one. How much are you looking into that one? You know, I I really think that was a series that could have gone either way, but personally, I think each of those teams is really missing one to two pieces that could make them a true championship contender. I think the Sixers, Celtics, and Bucks are the three teams from the East that I think have a realistic shot. And I, I might take the Bucks out of that group if Giannis isn't healthy. But I do love this series. There's so many young players. Donovan Mitchell repping for Cleveland. Julius Randle, meanwhile, currently getting it done. He's been averaging 25 and 10. I think that's a series that will bounce back between each team in basically every single game. I think this game is a team that at home the Cavaliers will bounce back. I think Donovan Mitchell will put up a really strong performance. I could see him dropping a really efficient 30 points or even depending on how many shots he gets up, something closer to 40. And so I think this series is one that will go back and forth because these teams have a lot of talent and have a lot of energy and really are quite young in various aspects. But I don't think it matters all that much in the grand scheme of things because I think there's there's too much talent and too much depth on some of these one to one and two and three seeds in the Eastern Conference that whichever team can get past round one will face a significantly more difficult challenge after that. Hundred percent. And and you question, right, that fatigue within this matchup, you touched up on Julius Randall and Donovan Mitchell. I think Mitchell, 38 points in 44 minutes in that first game, whereas Randall, 19 points. Maybe Mitchell with the upper hand in terms of star power. Randall seemingly having more help around him. Jalen Brunson, a 27 ball, showing why he got paid the big bucks. If you had to make a choice between these two teams, do you go with star power or do you go with that more balanced attack perhaps the Knicks offer? Yeah, I think the Knicks are probably the team that that I would go with. I think Jalen Brunson is someone who I still don't know how he swindled the front (laughs) office into that contract, but he has somehow made it almost seem somewhat logical That team, though, the Knicks team, is one that I think possesses enough in different aspects. I'm thinking of Jalen Brunson handling the ball and scoring, but also being able to dish it to Julius Randle and some of the other players that they have. That's a team that I think will be able to hold off the lesser players that Cleveland has. They don't have someone that can guard Donovan Mitchell. But if you look past that and you look at players 2, 3, 4, and 5, maybe even the bench, I think this Knicks team is one that that could really make a strong case for being the better team. And I think Game 1 could be slightly a fluke, but 
in the whole series, I think the Knicks are probably the team I would I would rather have. Totally fair. Totally fair. Moving on to the other series in the East. Number three Sixers versus number six Nets. A lot of people did not anticipate, perhaps, that the Nets would be in this position at this point in the season after, I don't want to say trying to start over, but obviously moving on from the Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, James Harden chapter. Yes, they're down 2-0, but they return home to Brooklyn. Are we going to see much of a fight here or is Joel Embiid and the Sixers a force that will not meet much resistance in this first round? Mikel Bridges is one of my favorite players in the NBA. He played 83 games this year. Not just 82, which is the amount that a team plays, but with the trade became the fifth player in NBA history to play 83 games. Absolutely love his grit and determination. He cannot be your leading scorer in the playoffs. He can't be the best player on your team. And absolute hats off to every player on the Nets that has been fighting since their roster was absolutely upended in the KD trade. But the combination of Mikel Bridges, Cam Johnson, and Spencer Dinwiddie is just not enough offensive firepower to compete with what the 76ers have much less stop someone that had an MVP caliber performance in Joel Embiid and a player that can score and dish it out in James Harden. I just, they're completely overmatched in my opinion, regardless of of how much effort and overall heart they're playing with. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, the Nets have lost six straight playoff games to the Sixers, and so perhaps a continuation of what has gone on and utter domination in game one and even though a bit of a slip up in game two Sixers totally took care of business the second time around outscoring them by 17 in the second half and so Joel Embiid a guy I uh, personally think should have been given more respect in the regular season I I, I do wish the best for him in terms of the Sixers playoff run this year so Looking at that Eastern Conference, if we we jump ahead to round two, you've got the winner of the Bucks Heat playing the winner of Cleveland, New York. Then you've got the winner of Philadelphia and Brooklyn playing Boston in Atlanta. The top matchup looks much more in air. The bottom matchup, though, looks all but cemented, even though it's only been a few games in each of those series. Let's say it ends up being Celtics-Sixers- which team are you giving the early edge to? Given the edge to the Celtics without a doubt because I feel like they definitely are the uh, forerunner, right? I mean, time and time again, people have looked at Jason Tatum. Time and time again, people have looked at the Celtics. That's why right now they're the uh, favorites, at least in terms of betting odds, to win the NBA Finals. So yes, they have the edge, but someone's telling me, man. Something is telling me, Jacob. The Philadelphia 76ers going to bounce out the Boston Celtics early in that second round, and the media is going to go crazy. I absolutely hope you're incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so then moving to that other series, though, I think think, let's go ahead and say the Bucs figure out a way to win it. Giannis comes back healthy. 
you can take your pick of Cleveland or New York against the Bucks. Any chance that there's an upset in round two against either of those teams? I just don't see it. Cleveland and New York, both, like you said, younger, exciting teams, but excitement only gets you so far in the playoffs. I mean, experience, veteran experience, that that is so important. The Bucks are a team that have been here before. Arguably, even the Heat have, too. A bold take, perhaps, but I feel more comfortable in both Milwaukee and the Heat over both Cleveland and New York. So no matter which way either series goes, I think that one or eight seed will be continuing on to the conference finals. Yeah, and and I don't know where that sense of comfort comes from, but I actually share it. I think Jimmy Butler, honestly, might. he, He seems to have an effect in the playoffs that just gives confidence not only to fans, but to his teammates as well. The way he controls the pace of play, his intensity is just really unprecedented. And, and yeah, I don't I don't know why, but I could definitely see if the Miami Heat find a way to beat the Bucks, they could very easily end up in the Eastern Conference Finals, which where they would definitely lose to the Celtics. But that's that's a few weeks away, so we can we can touch on that next week. Obviously, you know, we're just on the heels of the NCAA tournament and a lot of that was talking about predictions, what goes into deciding who's going to win what. I'm curious for you when you look at these NBA playoff matchups and you're figuring out, making these predictions, who's going to win and why, what are the factors you look at? Is it precedence? Is it historical success? Is it recency bias? Is it the stars on one side? What are the factors you personally believe go into playoff success? Yeah, I I think one of them that really I look at, first off, is just the injury report. Mm -hmm. Looking at who's in, who's out, what kind of different role that's going to have on the game. But then after that, I think I'm really looking for which team has the most size on the defensive end and the most space on the offensive end. I'm looking for players on teams that can you know stretch the floor, create space for their stars, but also play through pick and roll. So I, th- I think size and shooting ability something I'm looking for and then after that I'm looking at really the charisma of the superstars in today's NBA game with so much slow basketball and so many isolated possessions especially in crunch time I want to see which star that's going to be handling the ball is more likely to make that clutch shot is it going to be Giannis going to the rim or is it going to be someone like Jalen Brunson trying to get a bucket, is it going to be Steph Curry shooting a three or is it going to be another player throwing a shot up? And so I think looking at kind of the experience and really just the way that the stars have been playing would probably be the final factor. Hence why I think a team like the Heat could be so lethal. They've got Jimmy Butler, they've got some guys that can really stretch the floor. They've got Bam Adebayo who can guard the rim and play in the pick and roll. So I think they check a lot of those boxes right now that that are really important to me. And so obviously they're a little bit less talented than some of the top teams, but they're a team that I think kind of checks some of those boxes, hence why I think they they could make a run. So your factors, beginning with the injury report, And then obviously turning to kind of 
the bigs, the size, the versatility and recency, my mind jumps directly to the opposite side of the bracket with the Lakers versus Grizzlies. Two versus seven seed, another first game upset as the number seven seed Lakers, a team that we certainly, or at least I suppose I certainly did not see being in this position in the middle of the season. One game up against the two seed, Ja Morant, a game time decision for game two after hurting his wrist or hand in game one. So I am curious, a team that boasts both of them, versatile big man, Rui Hachimura leading the way in game one with 29 points for the Lakers, a guy that can post up, get, do the dirty work down low, also hit the mid-range. Obviously, Anthony Davis, so defensively talented, but also shows the ability to stretch the court. On the other end, the defensive player of the year, Jaron Jackson Jr., a guy who can handle the rock, po- pick and pop, pick and roll, whatever it is. Is this a series that you also see resulting in an upset, especially considering the injury report and that versatility that the Lakers have? Yeah, you know, the Grizzlies are are a bit of a personal favorite team of mine. Ooh. They've become the villains of the NBA, which I absolutely love. Oh. Ja, I don't know what he's doing. I question who he has in his circle. I question <laughs> who is giving him advice. Needs you in his circle. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what Dylan Brooks is trying to do to emulate Draymond Green. And yet, somehow, I absolutely love how much hate they get, and it makes me root for them even more, maybe I'm a little bit crazy for that. Maybe I'm a lot crazy for that. But this Grizzlies team has a special place in my heart as the villains of the NBA. And so when looking at this series, I did not expect this to be all that competitive, especially because the Lakers playing game, their offense was so bad in that fourth quarter. They That was a game that they deserved to lose. They ended up pulling it out. That team from Los Angeles, and I'm not talking about the one led by Kawhi, they have had some rough stretches lately. And so I just personally did not think they had it in them to beat the Grizzlies. And then, lo and behold, could not have been more wrong. I don't know what to even think about with that series, but with Jaw sidelined, that is a very winnable series for the Lakers, if not a series that they might even be favored in. I mean, that being said, not necessarily a similar situation, but we did have a long segment at the end of season one of the sports zoo, where we talked about John Morant's absence and suspension and how this Grizzlies team has actually found a lot of success in his absence. Of course, regular season games are not the same as playoff games for a team that seems to maintain, if not even improve their winning percentage without John Morant. How much of a factor do you see his potential, of course, as he might play in Game 2, but his potential absence in Game 2 in Memphis, potentially you know, going down 0-2 against a 7 seed? Yeah, you know, we, we have talked about that. I just have a hard time thinking in the playoffs that you want your best player to be missing, even if the stats maybe suggest otherwise. I also think, though, that having him injured in the fourth quarter is quite different than preparing a game plan without him. And I think that is a strong reason why it's possible that the Grizzlies could be fine. You look at when he got injured and, and really the rest of the game 
and they fell flat. It was a tied game with three or four minutes left, and the Lakers ended up scoring either 12 or 15 points to close it out. 15-0 run. Right, to end the game. And and I think that is where it's the most difficult to kind of anticipate how a team will respond without their star player with a new game plan, with the expectation that he's not playing. Then I think they can, you know, be a little bit more at ease and hopefully figure out a way to overcome that. But this is a Grizzlies team that looked far outmatched without Jaw on the court and a Lakers team that really seemed to know that. LeBron seemed to understand this to attack and he seemed to understand that Austin Reeves was the perfect guy to attack. Don't understand that decision at all, but worked out for them in their favor. And so I think this Lakers team is going to be coming in hungry. They're going to realize that they could steal another game with or without jaw. And so I think this is a roundabout way of saying that game two is anybody's game. It might be a seven versus a two. It might be in Memphis. This is anyone's game, especially if jaw doesn't play. If jaw doesn't play, but who do the Grizzlies even turn to? Game one, Jaron Jackson Jr. posting 31 points. Desmond Bain, the only other person to break 20 points. I mean, with Morant out, you have Tyus Jones and Luke Kennard as your only other potential ball handlers. Is Jaron Jackson cut out to be that guy? To be the guy who leads the Grizzlies over Anthony Davis and LeBron James and Austin Reeves? <laughs> <laughs> Let us not forget Stanford, or I guess he's not an alumni, Stanford X. Zaire Williams, who got in the game one, could we see him pop out and score? Absolutely not, but that would be pretty magical if he did that. Nonetheless, I think I think that's the question, you know? Who is going to step up? Jaron Jackson scoring 31 is not a realistic expectation for any Grizzlies fans. Desmond Bain, I don't even... I don't even know if 20 is a reasonable expectation for him. But I do think that this Grizzlies team could find a way to collectively come together. If every player is able to stretch the floor a little bit, if every player is playing hard, this is a team that that can compete. And I think it really is less about what they do on the offensive end and more about what they're doing on the defensive end. Can Jaron Jackson influence enough shots to give them a chance can Dylan Brooks play good enough defense to give their offense a chance? Are their perimeter players holding up enough to give you know that offense time to start firing and eventually find ways to score? Can we talk about Austin Reeves? This man is lighting up the internet. You know, I know you're first and foremost a Celtics fan. Evidently and I don't know if I'd say secondly, but evidently a Grizzlies fan. <laughs> Where does Austin Reeves rank on the totem pole of your NBA fandom? I love Austin Reeves. <laughs> I, I absolutely love him. I was so bewildered as to why he was the primary ball handler in a <laughs> playoff game when you have LeBron James on the court, when you have Anthony Davis on the court, when you have D'Angelo Russell on the team 
it, it blows my mind, and yet, obviously, it worked. You had arguably the greatest player of all time, the leader in points scored, someone who's breaking milestones in assists, letting this guy take over the game. And, and I love that he was mic'd up because that made it all the better. Him yelling, I'm him. I've seen that clip probably 30 <laughs> times already since then. I love him. I am sad that I have to root against him because the Grizzlies are playing them, but but I absolutely love him. And I think the nation is starting to take watch, especially because LeBron in his pe- press conference is talking about how he knew from day one that Austin Reeves <laughs> was going to be a star. Which, cap. Yeah. cap. <laughs> yeah. Throwing it back to you, who are some players or teams that some of our listeners don't necessarily know that maybe you, you root for or, or enjoy watching? Is Austin Reeves one of those? Is there someone from another team? Is it an entire team that, you know, kind of fills in those slots two, three, and four on either individual players or teams that you just enjoy their style of play? Yeah, no, obviously I'm a Warriors fan. Um, and it's funny, kind of this playoff series, because uh, when I first became a basketball fan, Harrison Barnes was actually my favorite player. I still have his jersey uh, in my closet. And it's so interesting to see a guy that, put it bluntly, is pretty me- mediocre, I don't know about last night. Harrison Barnes was playing with some energy last night. Um, <laughs> absolutely, him, though. See yeah. him go against the Warriors on my own team. It's such, a, such an odd phenomenon, uh, as I'm sure many fans experience their favorite players going to opposite teams, even rival teams. Um, and as much as it pains me to say it in that same vein, gosh, it is fun to watch the Kings finally be successful. I just wish it wasn't against the Warriors. I mean... People love offense. Offense is entertainment. The NBA is entertainment. Obviously, defense wins championships. Maybe that statement is being tested in recent years, but the NBA's premier offense right now with De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk and shoot, I'll throw Harrison Barnes' name in there. It is so exciting to watch. I just am so torn that it's happening against the Warriors. Aside from that, the Cleveland Cavaliers have a deep-rooted just bad taste in my mouth from the LeBron era, again, as a Warriors fan. But I would be so wrong not to comment on Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland. Those two have been so fun to watch. Both guys that uh, I've been watching on like YouTube back when they were in high school, and it's so fun to see them. I remember my bold take and. I don't know which draft it was. I said Darius Garland is going to be the best player in his draft class. I don't think that is true at the time. I think I was just saying it to be bold. Uh, After his rookie season, it looks like a terrible take, but I really do like that it's panning out. Both guys are so exciting to watch. be interesting to see if they get past New York. Absolutely. You mentioned a lot of guards. Any big men that have caught your eye, either shot blockers, guys that can stretch the floor, who who are some of your favorite fours and fives in the NBA playoffs right now. Yeah, got it. Got to show love to the big men. That is for sure. One guy that comes to mind, I guess, Rui Hachimura, 29 points in that upset win over the Grizzlies. Love him for a number of reasons. I mean, his game is is, is oddly unique and, and, and unique in the sense that it's almost calls back to what basketball really was about 15 years ago, but also, you know, the Asian Amer- American representation in the NBA, you love to see it taking, you know, 
form and in, in, in different ways than we've seen it in the past, but inspirational for all the Asian hoopers across the Bay. Uh, as an Asian basketball player myself that grew up in the Bay Area, I know how influential figures like that can be. Um, I suppose talking about a big man that I personally really dislike, Nikola Jokic, uh, you know, their 1-0 lead over the Timberwolves is something that is far from entertaining, and I feel like that's just going to be one of those first-round matchups that, you know, they take care of business, breeze by. Absolutely. We haven't even talked about that matchup, really because it feels so insignificant. That's a series where, in my opinion, I'm just kind of like, let's get it over with. Get Get the four games in, whatever. Without that much time, just over five minutes left here on the Sports Zoo, KZSU 90.1. Let's jump into what many have been calling the best series so far, the Kawhi versus KD series, the Clippers versus the Suns. Where did you sit coming into that series? And after game one, how are you looking at it now? You know, Suns losing by five after it was a tie game entering the fourth. Clippers just kind of go away with Kawhi scoring 38. I really was high on the Suns and a little low on the Clippers because the Suns, I felt like, really clicked. Chris Paul, Kevin Durant getting it done. Durant, I love what this might be able to do for his legacy. Didn't know if the Clippers had it figured out with Westbrook, with Paul George, with Kawhi. But just like Jimmy Butler, man, Kawhi seems to turn it off in these moments. I can't help but think, you know, on the Clippers' side, I wonder if Westbrook is a guy that is going to be holding them back. Um, and I'd love to see something bigger from KD. I mean, you know, obviously he's still scoring 27 points, which is 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 great by all standards. But Chris Paul with only seven, Devin Booker with 26. The Suns are a team that I was quite surprised went so far in years past. Uh, but now my expectations have changed, and I think they should continue on. Absolutely. Russell Westbrook, absolutely horrendous shooting the ball. Nothing new there. But, you know, did come up pretty clutch down the stretch. I think he was shooting in the teens from the field in game one, like three for 20, three Three for for 19, three for 19. Yeah, something like that. He's going to have to step up. But when I'm looking at the Suns, I shared that same sentiment that this is a team that could make a deep run. And yet, outside of, you know, Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, I'll throw Torrey Craig in there, some of those other guys didn't step up. DeAndre Ayton had 18, but he's got to be way more effective when it comes to guarding the paint. Chris Paul, you know, he always seems to go missing in the playoffs. Hopefully this wasn't the beginning of that because I really do like the Suns, but... Kawhi just simply took over the game and outdueled them. And I think it's great for the game of basketball that he was able to do that because he's a superstar that people forget how much he's done, whether that was in San Antonio or in Toronto. His image is one that I think has been slightly tarnished with all the -the off-the-court drama and his lowly personality, really preferring to say so little that people forget he's someone that can drop 40 in a playoff game and single-handedly will his team to victory. Certainly. It's uh, quite interesting 
noting the difference between the Suns starters or the clip both the starters and the bench for both teams because you know like you said on the Clippers side yes they have Kawhi yes they have Paul George but the the the, the depth does not go much further than that the Suns like you said guys not stepping up um the bench also somewhat thin but that star power is huge but the starters for the Suns had all roughly like a plus 8 to plus 10 plus minus difference whereas the Clippers were in the minus 8 to 10 as well but it was the bench every single Clippers bench player had a double digit plus minus whereas the Suns every single bench player was in the minus absolutely I mean you look at Mason Plumley. he is someone whose plus minus was 16 Bones Highland 13 Terrence Mann 13 those are really important plus minuses, especially when contrasted with the Suns. You've got minus 10, minus 12, minus 14, minus 8. That bench play is going to be one that's super critical to look at. Looking at the rest of the series, what are you expecting, Zach? I'd love to see those Suns stars step up big. I think they're just going to be too much for the Clippers. I got the Suns in 6. Suns in 6. You heard it here first. So, you have Warriors in Game 3, Suns in 6. Any other predictions about individual performances or the rest of these playoff series that fans can think about as they're tuning in to the next week of NBA playoffs? Dante DiVincenzo, 20-plus points on <laughs> Someone get this Warriors fan <laughs> off the mic, please. <laughs> Going to be the X-Factor stepping up. This is, after all, Bay Area News Radio Station, so... Fingers crossed for that W on Thursday. Yeah, definitely a fun game nonetheless. It feels just a little bit more special considering how close these teams are geographically. I know for me, I'll be watching the Kawhi versus KD matchup so closely. feels like they haven't had that much time to actually square off head-to-head. Either KD was injured, Kawhi was injured, they were both injured, or their teams just haven't played in critical moments. But that is a series where at one point in time those were the top two players in the league and yes LeBron was not either of those two players so that's a matchup that I know I'm super excited to keep watching definitely so before we go want to tip our hats to the Stanford performances going on got to give a huge shout out to Stanford men's gymnastics for Pete dynasty you heard it here first this is a program that is just unbelievable huge congratulations to that team absolutely there are five of them living in the same house as i am on campus love those guys super great off the mats but even better on the mats next up want to give a huge shout out to rosang she set the pac-12 championship 36 hole scoring record she's at nine under and leads by four shots with 18 holes remaining coming off winning the amateur Augusta Masters tournament a few weeks ago. And to wrap it all up, how about a tip of the hat to her teammate Kelly Shu, named Pac-12 Women's Golfer of the Week. Absolutely. My name is Jacob, joined here by my co-host Zach Zaffer. Next up, we have viewer discretion advised, but you've been listening for the last hour to The Sports Zoo live here on KZSU 90.1 FM and available on all podcast streaming services 
We'll be back next week with more NBA basketball and more sports, both here on the farm, in the Bay Area, and across the country. In the meantime, go support your Cardinal teams. Wear red, stay late, and be loud.